Sam Clements and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today we're joined by Mike Munzer, BBC Inside Cinema producer and editor and fellow podcaster, the man behind the excellent Evolution of Horror podcast. Hello Mike. Hello, thank you for having me. Well thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. It's nice to have a fellow podcaster on the show as well. I know. Purely just because, actually, you know how to hold the microphone. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I know how irritating it is if your guests just, you know, and it's not their fault, but some people don't know, do they? And they'll suddenly wave the mic around as they're talking or they'll just kind of lay it down for a minute. And yeah, I know how frustrating that can be. <laughs> <laughs> I've become a little bit hooked on the evolution of Horror Pod. Oh, thank you. Just for listeners who maybe haven't listened yet, it, I, I love how you describe it. It's a podcast for horror fans by horror fans. And it feels like you really are you know speaking the language of, of people who just enjoy watching these films uh, is it's very accessible in that way but then it gets you because it's also this in-depth analysis of these films and you do these very long series around you know certain elements of horror films which uh which has been really fun it's like very detailed you must do a hell of a lot of research do you know what i actually don't do a hell of a lot of research i think one thing about it is that i rely on my guests for that to be the clever ones which is great uh usually the people that come on the podcast because i have a different guest every every episode really to talk about a different film they usually are better at doing all the research but i guess it's uh it's more about our own personal takes on the film a lot of the time so i can happily wax on about as i'm sure we're about to find out i can happily wax on about a film for an hour and talk about what i loved about it and the elements that affected me the most and and actually i guess in some ways you don't need to do a whole lot of research for that other than just watching the film and loving the genre which Mm. i do and i think that's the main criteria for anyone i get on the podcast well they just got to love the film and the genre because we're not a review podcast i just want people that love the genre that are fans of horror that will come on and celebrate it how you've curated the podcast because mm. each episode you might focus on one or two films and again you know you, to cover a subject like currently as we're recording you're doing the occult yes but you've gone into you know just great detail of finding brilliant examples of it on screen from current releases from older releases that must be quite fun sort of assembling the stack of dvds that you're about to talk about i love that that's my favorite part actually it's it's i guess it's like curating or programming my own little mini festival or something funnily enough which links us to this podcast but that's kind of what it feels like a bit and i i really want to make sure i get a bit of everything that's within that subgenre and i do kind of push it a bit some movies aren't strictly occult movies but anything that kind of in some way you can you can include in that conversation it's really interesting to include um and we've we've gone all the way back to literally the origins of cinema with this occult series so we did george melia's the house of the devil or the manner of the devil which is literally one of the first horror films if not one of the first ever films mm. really from sort of 1899 or something like that um and we've gone all the way through to yeah lords of chaos from last year so it's it's really fun getting to do such a, a range is it hard to cut some films uh, that you do want to talk about but yeah just don't quite get through yeah definitely and it is and i guess that's this is all part of it but i do get obviously lots of feedback from people you know going i can't believe you didn't include this or why where was this and you know i just have to tell myself that's part of it people like to 
uh, recommend stuff and people like to get involved in the conversation as well which is really nice and I think this is what happens with horror films and horror fans in particular it's probably similar with sci-fi and stuff but it it kind of creates this community, this sort of cult community. And this is the thing that surprised me most about the podcast. And the thing that I've loved most about this podcast is that it's it's literally kind of spawned this group. Like there's a discussion group now on Facebook of just people that listen to the podcast and talk about horror with sort of over a thousand members. And they now meet up. And I've met a lot of people through it and they do drinks and we did a Halloween party and all of these kind of things. And so that has been an incredible part of it. And uh, so now you know all of those people are just as much part of the podcast as the as the guests really because everyone kind of suggests films that they want to hear discussed or talks about what they think should be included etc so yeah I, I love that element of it as well it's incredible isn't it because uh, the joy of pod is uh, you you create quite an intimate relationship with your listener you know we're, we're in their ears right now yeah, it's yeah. fantastic but actually to meet your listeners and to have that sort of it's got its life of its own and they're talking amongst themselves that, that's really wonderful wow it's ama- it's amazing i can't quite believe it i'm seeing tonight two friends uh who one of which i only met through the uh through the podcast because they listen to the podcast and they are now a couple they coupled up due to the halloween party that was organized through this podcast discussion group so i've made love happen sam oh, wow yeah that's yeah incredible. i'm most proud of that yeah when when did you decide to start the podcast? What was the sort of kickoff for you? Well, I come from uh, a production background in TV, and I did lots of movie related shows for the BBC. I did the the film program for years, the kind of whatever year it was. So, film twenty fourteen, film twenty fifteen, the thing that Claudia Winkleman and Danny ah, Lee yeah, used yeah. to do. And so, I was in my day job. I was kind of constantly frustrated that there weren't more fun movie or arts related shows that I could work on, and. Uh, and I loved podcasts. I listened to so many movie podcasts. And uh, and so I just thought, yeah, I'm, I might as well put my sort of production skills to use and also my contact book of mm. people that I've met through the film show, like critics and, you know, cinephiles. And, and I've always loved horror my whole life. So it just felt like the natural thing to do, really. And as with all podcasts, you know, I didn't really start it with a thought that it would become something. I just did it for me, really. It's just a, mm. a great way to sit down and talk about horror films with other cinephiles really outside of, of of horror you know are you interested in wider cinema or is it really you know horror is is, is, is your go-to no i love all cinema of course and especially you know working on uh, like for example i'm currently producing inside cinema um for the bbc uh which is great and that's essentially working with different writers and journalists um and creating these video essays based on what they've written and i love that because i yeah i absolutely love all cinema yeah you're making short form films yourself and a lot of horrors are actually quite short is runtime something that plays into your film going decision making oh god yeah the, i think one of the reasons I love horror so much is that so many horror films are 90 minutes or less. I love going to festivals like Fright Fest because they pack them in. Again, if, if something is longer than, not even 90 minutes, if something's longer than about 80 minutes, I kind of go, ooh, I don't know about that. You know, particularly at horror festivals like Fright Fest. It's really got to earn that running time, I think, if it goes beyond 90 minutes, definitely. And I do love some of the longer stuff. Uh, for example, Ari Aster's movies like mm-hmm. Midsummer and, and Hereditary. I love them. But... Yeah, it's got to earn that running time, I think. How did you approach my question? What film, single film, would you like to put into the 90 minutes or less film first? Well, I guess it's very easy for me to say this, that the film I've chosen is my favourite horror film of all time and therefore probably 
one of my favorite movies of all time so the fact that one of my favorite ever films is under 90 minutes and hasn't yet been covered on this podcast it was a pretty easy decision for me to make to be honest it was a sign yes exactly <laughs> and what film did you choose for us today mike uh, i chose toby hooper's the texas chainsaw massacre the original 1974 the texas chainsaw massacre not only changed the face of horror in 1974 but remains one of the most shocking powerful and terrifying films ever made widely banned on its release its notoriety has not diminished and this harrowing tale of a depraved Texan clan and its chainsaw-wielding icon, Leatherface, continues to stun and disturb audiences like no other film. This new director-supervised restoration brings new life and detail to the film and immerses the viewer as never before. Quote, The best the film has ever looked. Toby Hooper. <laughs> what a nice back-of-the-box. That's great, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> it doesn't really give us any plot details but it tells us we should probably watch this film absolutely and do you know what i think the title itself is the plot synopsis isn't it i don't how much more do you need to know about the plot other than the title surely the greatest title ever <laughs> the texas chainsaw massacre what well, is that thing isn't it if um oh, i've just seen this great film uh what is it called the texas chainsaw massacre what's it about about a Texas Chainsaw Ex Massacre. Exactly. <laughs> it, it does what it says on the tin, pretty much. Yeah, yeah I, I quite enjoyed that. Uh, I guess we should follow up with a few things. We're going to have a spoiler-filled chat. So if you haven't seen the film, there are so many versions of it out there. <laughs> uh, I, I rewatched a lovely Second Sight Blu-ray, which is the... the best the film has ever looked according to director toby hooper but i think it's available on streaming and, and all sorts of stuff released in 1974 directed by toby hooper his second film i think mm -hmm. i think he did an earlier film called eggshells also under 90 minutes that's right released in 1969 and he's got lots of shorts on on his imdb co-written uh, by hooper and, and kim henkel and uh, it was an independent production it's one of those classic stories of a low budget independent film going on to become this huge success and like a 40-year legacy of, of yeah. sequels, remakes, and this notoriety around it. It's uh, it's like a proper... It's like living the dream for an independent film. This. It is, isn't it? Although, I, I, you know, as with so many of those types of films, I don't think they felt that at the time. It was, you know, apparently one of the most hellish shoots you can imagine. They had no money. Everyone was really, really underpaid and overworked. They were shooting in the Texas, you know, boiling hot, 100 plus degree sun. They were using real kind of <laughs> bones and dead animals and corpses and all this stuff and people were being sick and fainting on set and everyone was treated horrendously so i think it was a, a an act an absolute nightmare making this film but yeah what a wonderful thing that it then became the film that it did yeah, yeah all of that hard work yeah and uh, yeah i mean you can see it on on screen like everybody is like sweating for real oh. performance wise lots of running around lots of screaming you know quite exhausting sort of activities for the cast it feels like they've really been they've really been put through it yeah definitely what what i love about this film so much is that y you can almost smell it you know it, everything about this film is like like you say it's sweaty it's it's gross let's be honest it's grimy and gross from beginning to end but in a very clever way because there's there's nothing overtly gory happening on screen you don't really see any blood a single drop of blood throughout the whole film there is no there is no chainsaw massacre in a way if you think about the amount of people that are killed by a chainsaw on screen i think there's one uh and it's this it's this incredible trick of cinema that you come out of that film thinking you've been put through the mo the ultimate nasty exploitative 
you know, grotesque horror film you've ever seen. And actually, there's very little on screen, but it's just the feel of it. It's the vibe. It's the graininess. Yeah. I think that's the, the sign of a good horror, isn't it? Like yeah. You don't need to see the gore, but yeah. it's created this mood that sort of tricks you yeah. into thinking you have because, you know, and that's just great filmmaking. Such incredible filmmaking from beginning to end. You know, from the opening second, this film starts when you get that that scroll of that, that kind of the film you are about to see. You know, you, you feel like you're watching... You feel like you're about to watch some sort of snuff film or something. The way that they build it up from the beginning, and it's just—and of course, none of it is. It's just—it's just really clever filmmaking. It's really fascinating to sort of read the history of the film at the release of it, and how Toby Hooper wanted this film to be a PG-rated film <laughs> because he cut out a lot of the gory scenes. That the MPAA in America, the, the ratings board, of course, slapped it uh, a huge rating on this film, and then it ended up getting banned in certain territories. And, and it's got this notoriety of—I think in the UK it wasn't officially. It was out in 1974, briefly, and then it got banned by the BBFC here, and, and then it was officially sort of de-banned uh, yeah. in 1999. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. And again, I actually had the BBFC on my podcast talking about it, and I said, you know, if that film came out now, or if you had to re reassess it, would you give it less than an 18? Because there's nothing really, again, there's no gore on screen, there's no sex, there's n- there's nothing explicit happening on screen. And they said, no, we would still give it an 18. And again, I just think it's fascinating, this film, is that it's it was banned and censored and all sorts just purely for being too scary. Like, mm. There is nothing else about it that is, you know, you watch some of the movies from that time, like Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave, really horrible, nasty movies with, you know, really explicit content going on on screen. This film has that reputation, but it has none of that on screen. I think that's just testament to how powerful the film is. And it was still a success, even though it was banned in, in various countries and territories and states. Yeah. Uh, it still, it, it apparently cost $140,000 at the time. Yeah. Very, very low budget, but box office receipts ended up grossing 30 million dollars amazing that's remarkable i think today like that's that's unheard of really yeah Uh, so yeah somehow i guess by banning it and the controversy helps get bums on seats it certainly helps it's something i'm sure everyone's aware of in the horror community there there is like that kind of it's like that challenge like you and i definitely went through a phase of this i wanted to see everything that had that reputation yeah i want to go back and watch cannibal holocaust i want to see yeah i spit on your grave And, and texas chainsaw massacre was one of those like the video nasty kind of era that these movies that were so shocking that they were banned that just adds to their power a lot of the time do you remember when you first watched it and and, and what format you watched it on i watched it on channel four in the late 90s early 2000s when they were doing the kind of extreme season or something like that and mark kermode would introduce Mm. a lot of the films so i can't remember specifically what year that was but i think it was shortly after the film got its re-release in Mm. 99 so it was probably early 2000s i would have been way too young because i was born in 87 so i would have been about 13 14 but i was obsessed at that point with slasher films i had seen things like scream and halloween and friday the 13th and i wasn't scared by them at all i thought oh these films are just really fun they're kind of schlocky and silly and they're sort of their teen movies essentially you know Mm. and so i thought yeah i can handle the texas chainsaw massacre because again i think it's wrongly stamped with the the label of slasher film but i think it's so much i wouldn't say more than that because that's doing a disservice to slasher films but it is so different to slasher films it's not really a slasher film at all in its tone or its mood or its look so i saw it late on channel four on my little tv 
and it absolutely terrified me. It really traumatized me. Yeah, and I didn't even know why. Really, it's just all the screaming. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the screaming, and and I think there are some just iconic kind of uh, character designs and costumes in it, which yeah. are still they still hold up today. Oh god, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and those characters, obviously Leatherface, but the the hitchhiker character, the whole family of them, it, it just grotesque, terrifying characters, and the production design, the bones, and the yeah, again, it's that feeling that you're you you you're just stuck in this hell and she can never get out of it every time she nearly escapes she's straight back in it again you know and it's this never-ending nightmare it feels like the film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths in particular sally hardesty and her invalid brother franklin it is all the more tragic in that they were young but had they lived very very long lives they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is a, a horror film where the characters, I think, are quite forgettable. Yeah. Apart from Leatherface, the iconic villain. Yeah. And actually, I don't think the film knows who its protagonist is. No. Until the end, it feels like Marilyn Burns' character, Sally, just happens to be the last one standing. <laughs> Absolutely. And I guess this is something that definitely became... Well, I guess it's always been there with horror, ever since the Universal Monsters of the 30s, that the, the monsters are the heroes in some way. I wouldn't call Leatherface the hero of this, but I think the the family of cannibals are definitely the most interesting. They're the best performed and they're the best written characters in this film. You're right, and I think the the kids, Sally and her awful brother and uh, her friends, are... They are just archetypes. They're lambs to the slaughter. They're not much more than that, are they? They are slabs of meat that are going to be disposed of, essentially. That's what they feel like. And, and, and yeah, I think I remember Toby Hooper famously saying that this film is about a bad day for everyone. And he said it's a, it's, it's a bad day for Leatherface, too. You know, he doesn't know what's going on. Who are these people that keep invading his home? And, you know, there are moments when Leatherface himself, you can see it, is freaking out. And he's confused and he's worried. And, you know, so... It's it's this nightmare situation for everyone involved, but you're right. There's not really a there's not really a sort of protagonist in this, yeah, which is interesting. That's one of the many joys of this film as well. Actually, it feels properly unique and very inventive, and 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 I, so I sort of admire it. Even though when you at the end of the day, you're like, I didn't really care about any of this. <laughs> you know? No, I know, and and to be honest, it's it's definitely something that is very unusual for me. I usually love to have a, a film, especially a horror film, with characters that you can really get on board with, because otherwise, where's the fear coming from? If you don't care about these characters, that's what I think is one of the worst parts about some of the worst slasher movies is that you're really there to watch them die and nothing else. And But you, there's no fear there, there's no stakes because you don't care about anyone on screen. Which in theory I should think about this film, but I don't because maybe because it's directed so it's directed so realistically maybe. There's something about it that almost feels documentary-like. And even though these performers playing these kids are clearly not the most experienced actors, there's still a kind of naturalism about them. Mm. When they're all talking in the van at the beginning and they're reading horoscopes and they're kind of the way that they sort of talk over each other and interrupt each other and um and ah, it feels very natural and almost improvised in the dialogue. And so even though the characters, yeah, are, are in no, they're very thinly drawn, 
they're very realistically portrayed so it's almost like we're just being dropped into this real life situation with these real life kids who are just kind of nothingy kids but i am still invested in a weird way I think you're right when the film starts and it starts in the uh, back of this you know very trad sort of 70s kind of hippie sort of camper van and these are you know young free liberal kids it's really nice just actually being in the van with them the camera is actually in the van as they're actually driving yeah and it's got this sort of guerrilla filmmaking vibe to it it really uh, does yeah it really does it almost feels like when you're watching the beginning of the Blair Witch Project or something and you're seeing those three teenagers just you know just yeah, just talk crap to one another, which a lot of people do in real life, I suppose. Yeah. It's also a very quite a surreal beginning because they're not like they're going on a trip together to hang out. There's two couples and a brother, but they make a weird sort of detour in this town to check that their grandparents haven't been dug up by a grave robber. I know. <laughs> what? I know, it's really weird, isn't <laughs> Why'd it? Why do you start your holiday with that, guys? I think it's I think it's yes, I know. Why would you? I think it's more that they, they are just going to visit their grandfather's grave, I think, because they're driving past it or near it. But yeah, it is a very weird thing. And then there's that that moment when they get out of the van for the first time and you see some of the locals and you just know from that in that from that very first second things are not right now you know things are going to get worse and worse but yeah it's a very weird move (laughs) but that's the first i think maybe it's like the first sort of 10 minutes or so uh for a film with a short runtime (laughs) they're quite liberal with the pacing like actually even before you see anything on screen because you have the 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 warning the disclaimer come up and then you sort of see these kids sort of hanging around in the back of a van it takes a while to for you to realize that actually this could even be a horror film yeah no absolutely i think what's again what's really interesting about it considering it's now one of the most beloved and iconic horror movies really at first glance it doesn't have many of those horror tropes you know i guess if you think classic horror you think dark and stormy night or you think a gothic mansion or a monster or this doesn't really it most of the action for the first bulk of it takes place in the in the sunlight mm. it's brightly lit there's not a whole lot of violence or horror that happens in the first maybe what 45 50 minutes of the running time yeah you're right you you wouldn't even know really overtly that you're watching a horror film and yet there is this horrible feeling of dread i think from the very first second it starts from that warning mm. through to the weird camera sound effects of the and close-ups of bits of corpses and the dead armadillo in the road oh, yeah. and there's just loads of just images that make you realize you know this is a, a place of death really i think that's like hooper's not that the film is subtle especially towards the end but at the beginning there is just these little subtle signifiers yeah that i actually you know enjoy the very contemporary chat yeah. with the teenagers but just watch out and exactly. then yeah you see the sort of the drunken sort of sheriff yeah you know, the town the, the guy owning the gas station yeah and then the hitchhiker is such a good scene also i mean never want to pick, pick up a hitchhiker oh after seeing my this god he's so scary i i think when i was young i found him a scarier character than leatherface even there was something more sadistic about him i think with leatherface there was this idea that he was just doing what he was doing his job which is this you know slaughterhouse person he's this worker he's this minion almost of this family you see the way he's treated later on whereas there's definitely something he the up uh, the hitchhiker character is more of a sadist definitely you can see it in the way he treats sally at the end and everything he's a terrifying character also because they invite him in and it's the preconceptions it's great you know oh we're helping this guy out you know we're in control yes and then just through the conversation you can see actually 
he knows exactly what he's doing mm-hmm. and they all they all sort of all bunched together there's five of them bunched together at the front of the van and he's taking over the whole of the backspace uh, and i i think that that conversation has played out so well so it feels well. like an action set piece isn't it? in its own right but it's just this guy talking yeah yeah and again there's something really real about it as well uh, you know for again a bunch of kind of very undertrained actors and a new filmmaker there's something about it that feels like you could see this is how this might play out in real life. You know, if you picked up a weird hitchhiker and the fact that they kind of, first of all, don't really do anything and it gradually gets more and more... There's an awkwardness about the whole scene, isn't there? Before it really goes into full-blown, like, them screaming and kicking him out of the van. It takes a while to get to that point. Mm. For a while, they just watch him and they're like, what's happening here, you know? And I can imagine that's what I would be like if that happened to me. Yeah. Uh, and then and then eventually, you know, we're on the open road. The film is really well shot, actually. I, I think Beautiful. it's worth mentioning how, how good this film looks and i think that's maybe another reason why it's had this long lifespan you know this is a cinematic movie and it should be seen on a big screen it is the uh, is one of the most cinematic movies i think you know again you know the, i think it's very easy to maybe write this film off if you haven't seen it as one of those grainy grimy exploitation films but every shot is composed stunningly in one way or another even the ones that do look handheld and and Mm. jerky and weird you know but yeah it's beautiful lots of shots of the landscape and the sun setting the way that they shoot the house later on and the swing bench and everything yeah it's every angle looks like it's really carefully chosen and composed hello i'm helen from flixwatcher and i'm kobe also from flixwatcher the Netflix review podcast you go to when you can't find anything to watch on Netflix. That's right. We are another podcast in the strip media family. So if you've struggled to find a film on Netflix, then we're the podcast for you. And we have guests from other podcasts, big and small, and they're the ones that actually choose the films that we then rate and review and talk about in our show. If you'd like to find out more about Flixwatcher or any of the other shows, visit www.strip.media to find out more go from these wide open spaces to eventually pulling up at the house yes the, the creepy empty house from this very sort of like leisurely sort of pace where it's a quite a meandering narrative in the house a lot of plot happens yeah and leatherface's emergence is so good his first appearance <sighs> do you remember how you reacted when when you first saw leatherface appear on screen with the hammer and he instantly takes out one of the characters shocked and terrified and shaken it is still probably to this day my favorite moment it is probably my favorite moment in cinema that moment it's my favorite scene in this film the weirdness of it it's so weird that when he walks into the house um the the, the guy i don't remember his name he walks into the house and uh, you you hear what sounds like a pig squealing or something mm. there's this weird unexplainable noise and he's trying to figure out what's going on then leatherface comes crashing through that sliding door hits him on the head with a mallet you see his body kind of twitching and then he gets just gets dragged through to the other side of the door the door slams shut and it's it's all over within about five seconds and yet it's one of the most nightmarish things i've i've ever watched it will never not be powerful that moment yeah i think we're used to and you'll definitely know more about this than me but in horror films we're used to like maybe some musical cues leading up to the reveal of the villain the monster and and you know maybe some teasers but there's no teasers whatsoever he just runs out through a door and i think because it's such a break from the cinematic language of even going back to the universal horror films of like the 30s we, we don't see villains introduced this way no not at all it's it's because the, the camera is quite far away mm. we don't really i think there's one brief cutaway to the cl- close-up of, of leatherface's face as he reaches up with the mallet but other than that everything is shot from quite a distance like you say there's no music and so you yeah, again, it's very just sort of matter of fact and feels very real. 
and feels very, again, snuffy or something. There's something about it that makes it all the more disturbing because of, yeah, it's not in the traditional sense cinematic or, you know, horror kind of uh, horror cinema but then there is that moment when the door slams shut and then that music that kind of that sort of drone Mm. and it's like from that moment onwards that's it now we're in a horror film but yeah and I think that's everything is that it comes out of nowhere and we're about 45 minutes into the running time and nothing overtly horrific has happened until this point Mm. as well so (laughs) it's all just such a shock to the system yeah and then it's quite quick it's quite pacey yeah Um, they whittle these these five teenagers in the van down to down to the one uh, last standing one uh, quite quite quickly and again, that's that's kind of a break, you know. There's you don't know who to be attached to. Still, no. you don't know who's going to be sort of the final girl in, in in this case. And and I love how quickly Leverspace dispatches them because I think the second death is the most gruesome death for me. They uh, he picks up a woman and puts her on a meat hook, and the sound design and actually just the visual act. I think the way the way it's shot. It's always shot from like the meat hook's point of view. Yes. And then you see Leatherface, who's so big. Gunnar Hansen, who plays Leatherface, is this incredible physical form. And he picks her up like it's no effort at all. Yeah. And then then it cuts to the other shot of her going onto the meat hook, and you hear that noise. And her reaction is incredible. Yes. It's so disturbing. It's so <laughs> disturbing. Everything about it is done so... It's so brilliant. And, and it is really, really gruesome and disturbing without actually being, like I say, overtly gruesome in any way, sort of graphically. But yeah, it's so different to what you you maybe get in a few years' time with slasher films from Halloween onwards, where the kills might be very jumpy and stylized and quick. Uh, someone like Michael Myers will pop out, there'll be a big loud cord, and he'll stab someone with a knife, and then they'll be dead. And it's like that's it. This is like slow and arduous and scrappy. And um, Leatherface as a killer, he's not like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers, who kind of walk around and pop up out of the shadows and are quiet and omnipresent. He trudges around, he falls over, he's screaming, he's, you know, everything about it is messy and nasty, um, which really adds to it, I think. Yeah. Also, these are the first two deaths in the film. No chainsaw. No chainsaw, exactly. You know, we're, we're already halfway through our amount of victims and nobody's been killed with a chainsaw yet as well. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating. But we do see him, I think, after that, pick up the chainsaw for the first time and I think he carves up his first, first victim yeah. uh, in front of, uh, I think it's Pam, played by Terry McMahon at that, at that point. And again, her reaction, seeing her boyfriend being carved up is, uh, is, is great. I think she has such a bad time because she ends up in a freezer, oh, <laughs> still, still alive. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's truly gruesome, isn't it? And yeah, that, that's it you know we and again even when he gets that chainsaw out and turns it on we don't then see what he does no, afterwards no, do we like cutting uh, there and it's just the sound of the chainsaw yeah and, i uh, think uh, you know we talked about the cinematography but the sound design is such a huge part of this film as well because it's this endless just it's this endless drone or something isn't it even the, the background music isn't like a kind of um you know, it's not like the Bernard Herrmann psycho score or anything. It's not overtly a horror score. It's this just pulsating. It almost sounds like a power drill or something, the, the, the music in the background. And then the relentless, you know, just noise of screaming and power tools that go on in the second half of the movie as well. It's like, That really adds to the nightmare, I think. But there's also something really kind of perversely funny about this film as well. I don't know if you find that there's a, like, the there's a... An, ex- an absurdness to it, maybe. That's what it is. The the way these characters behave, 
when he kidnaps her and puts her in the car and he's kind of poking her with a stick and laughing and stuff. It's almost comical in places. And uh, obviously when she's tied up and the family are taunting her and you see the grandfather character, who is kind of comical. There's this moment when he's trying to, I think, cut off her head, but he's too weak and he can't and he keeps dropping the axe. And yeah, you almost feel like, is this being done for comedic effect? And it's a really jarring clash of sort of tones and styles that you're seeing at that point which really adds something for me the scene with the, the grandpa who's established he's um th- you know they worked in a slaughterhouse's family and he's yeah. the expert slaughterer yeah um, so they want him to do the kill yeah but i remember as a kid i might have just been an awful kid but i did find that really funny yeah. that he couldn't he couldn't dispatch it is fu- i think it is funny and i think toby hooper was was going for funny uh, with some of these moments as well. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it is, it's both funny and deeply disturbing at the same time. Because again, Marilyn Burns, who plays Sally, is really, really going for it. She she is behaving like she's in a serious film. So no matter mm. how absurd or funny or silly the film is, she is taking everything deadly serious. So that really, you know, I think that, that keeps you invested still. This, at this point you really get to appreciate some of the design of, of this family yeah the grandpa looks like i mean he's he's got this it's a latex mask mm. to make him look even older but it's so kind of grotesque he looks like a goblin almost he does yeah he does <laughs> it's a kind of mix between a goblin and frankenstein's creature and uh, yeah a whole bunch of, and a zombie you mm. know it's yeah it's really strange yeah, you think he's dead i think that's the other thing that made me really jump this film isn't like full of jump scares for me i think it's no. a lot it's mood or anything but he made me jump because i thought he was just a corpse he's yeah. like pale he's gray but then they they do that grotesque thing of sort of like pricking sally's finger and putting it in his mouth <laughs> and that kind of revives him and you hear the sound effect of him sort of sucking on her finger as well it's very odd it's so weird yeah and, and again again like the way that that whole sequence is filmed because again all sally is doing is screaming is sat in a chair screaming but the extreme close-ups on the eyeballs Mm. and her mouth and just the way toby hooper chooses to shoot everything in the most grotesque way imaginable it's almost unwatchable in a good way (laughs) you also get to really see the detail on leatherface the scene because he's in a he's he's in in a room not running around with a chainsaw yes and they don't really talk about the history of this character and his family and i I like that that makes it feel even more alien and scary but you really see that sort of like very thin layer of flesh over over his his real face yeah also he's kind of there's something about him that is like um sort of non-gendered in a weird way like sometimes in that latter half he's almost playing this like wife role Mm. if you notice like he wears this apron and i think they've got a different face mask on him at that point or different hair or something and he's almost treated like a yeah like like a mother character or a maid or something it's really strange yeah and again he's just this total mystery character we don't know anything about him or why he is behaving the way he's behaving or why he looks the way he looks and i think that's really what makes horror films scary a lot of the time is the unexplainable i think a lot of horror films lose their power when the ki- the monster or the killer or whatever it might be is over explained when we get or and we'll get into this with the sequels but the more you explain about leatherface and the more you learn about his origin i think the less scary he becomes you know yeah we don't want to rationalize these nightmares he's a no. nightmare basically he's yeah. this unstoppable force yeah and and that is enough you know you want to run away before you find out anymore about him. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Which is kind of how the film ends as well. I think it's one of the great endings because it just oh, knows when to stop and as a, someone who runs a film festival focused on under 90 minute long films knowing when to stop is key and 
you know, we're following Sally. The film has decided she is the main character. So if she can get away, then the film needs to end. And she makes it through the night due to the sort of ineptness yes. of the family uh, sort of dispatching her. And, and then it's daylight again. Oh, thank God. Daylight. Thank God. <laughs> Have you ever been so pleased to see daylight when she smashes through that window? It's such, yeah. a, it's such a satisfying moment that when she bursts her way out of the house into freedom. Yeah, it's wonderful. But you really see how scary Leatherface is because he then sprints after her with his chainsaw. Yeah. And actually in the wide open plains, a guy with a chainsaw running after you is still very scary. Very. Yeah, very. And again, it's it's that he's so manic mm. and clumsy. I think that makes it worse somehow. Yeah. And of course, that final shot of him just waving it around in the air with that sudden cut to black and it is there is something and so he's again you're left with that feeling that he's just he's still out there yeah sally's got away but they're they're waiting for the next uh, yeah. the next people to drive through yeah yeah <laughs> truly horrific i love it you think that's blood yeah i guess so oh that's blood all right and that guy cut the hell out of himself you think you could do that to yourself like crazy yeah, you know. It, it takes something, though. I mean, just to do that to yourself like he did. God. What was the legacy of, of this film? Because it has spawned... I mean, it's still it's a name that we recognise still yep. today, and it spawned this whole sort of genre and, and remakes and oh god sequels well you know like and of course this happens with so many of these big horror franchises again going all the way back to the 30s and look how many dracula and frankenstein and wolfman movies there were but it, it definitely happened in the 70s and 80s with big horror franchises like halloween friday the 13th nightmare on elm street they all spawned sequels and sequels you know 10 plus sequels most of them and to varying degrees of success. I actually quite like some of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. I think there's some cool imaginative stuff. I think some of the Halloween movies are okay. Some of the Friday the 13th sequels are quite fun, some better than others. But I think with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, unfortunately, it is the it's the film with the worst legacy of sequels and remakes. Um, maybe it's partly because I love the original so much. Um, it's my favourite. But really the quality is so bad of the sequels and remakes i wouldn't recommend seeing any of them uh, i think toby hooper himself made part two but he went for something completely different tonally he went more for that tone that he gets you know in the end of the first movie when the grandpa is trying to chop off the, the head this kind of absurd comedy uh, he pushes that more in the second one and it doesn't work for me really and uh, and then after that they just get worse and worse there's a there's one, I think it's the fourth one, that stars Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey, which is really dreadful, terrible. Then there was a remake, one of those Platinum Dunes, Michael Bay remakes, I think in 2003, which was okay. Like a lot of those remakes, it had slightly glossier production values. It was slightly more, you know, um, I guess, you know, technically, I guess you'd call it technically accomplished, although, you know, I don't know if I'd agree with that. But also it kind of missed the point of everything about the original. It it did absolutely throw guts and blood at the screen and had no subtlety, you know, whatsoever. And then there was an origin story called Leatherface about how he became Leatherface, which was really boring and again took away any air of mystery or horror to that character. And there's been a couple of other movies since then as well. I've not actually seen them all because at some point I gave <laughs> up. But yeah, I think it's it's like lightning in a bottle, I think, with that first one. And and maybe 
maybe, you know, with the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper wasn't really making a film about Leatherface. But that was the that was the character that filmmakers and producers latched onto from that point onwards, and every film became more and more about Leatherface. And actually, maybe he was better just as one member of this group and the one that you didn't really know anything about, you know? So, yeah, I think, unfortunately, the legacy's pretty bad. <laughs> I think the film still holds up and I'm sure it'll be a really interesting experience but the Leatherface has such a cultural sort of value yes. you're sort of watching it going where's Leatherface yes. where's Leatherface yes, exactly. and I hope that hasn't taken away from first time watchers mm. who think this is the Leatherface movie yeah it's so interesting that it's, and again it happens with a lot of other horror films and franchises uh, you know a lot of people probably now know but some people were surprised when they see Friday the 13th for the first time that there is no Jason, that Jason, the hockey masked killer that everyone associates with Friday the 13th, isn't in the first one. Hellraiser, we all think of that character of Pinhead. He's he's in, I think, two scenes of the original Hellraiser and stuff. So it's really interesting how that often happens. Some some one one element of the, of the original film people talk about and then, of course, movie producers and filmmakers push that and push it and push it in the sequels. Yeah, I guess it's the audiences as well. Yeah. If they come out of it going, oh, the, the chainsaw guy was scary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, you know, those voices are heard and, and it's, um, you know, it's you're making this art for a, an audience. Yeah. So then, then you, oh, let's do more Leatherface. Let's do 10 more Leatherfaces. It's, it's the <laughs> classic sequelitis, isn't it, I suppose? It's like, let's, let's give you what you enjoyed about the first one, but 10 times that amount, you know? It's what so many sequels do. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Uh, we've got quite a healthy horror strand now. Quite, in, quite enjoying this. I love it. Uh, we're going to get this movie on the big screen. I can give you a cinema, I can give you a print of the film, but what, what would you like to bring to that cinema to sort of maybe theme the environment, to really eventize this, uh, this screening of this movie? Well, I think you've got to crank the heat up. I think it needs to be as hot and sweaty in there as possible, first of all. I would say we need some bone furniture. I think you need some chairs made out of bones, maybe some live chickens wandering around or in cages. Probably not allowed to do that these days, maybe not, but have some have some live animals wandering about. Give it that real kind of like musty, uh, smelly, sweaty kind of environment. What a lovely, what a lovely uh, environment to watch a film in. But I think that would really <laughs> add something. And, and also food, barbecue food. That's oh, what yeah. you'd need. You'd need like some medium rare beef burgers or something like that. Definitely. Yeah. Some head cheese. Exactly. Yeah. Some head cheese. <laughs> I think if there was a dining element, I would quite like to have some, uh, some of the family members just sort of dotted around the yeah. table, uh, you know, wearing all the prosthetics. <laughs> Yes, just sort definitely. of interact with the audience it feels a bit like a sort of an immersive theater show but exactly yeah i think so i think it would perfectly suit that you need a bit of screaming and writhing around in the audience that's what you need <laughs> in fact if we were doing a barbecue maybe a hog roast maybe it could be carved by a chainsaw exactly maybe that's it definitely <laughs> a hog roast is perfect so you get that sort of pig's head on a table in the middle of the cinema perfect. dinner and a cinema ticket is the perfect date night. i know right <laughs> i would absolutely come to this this sounds brilliant <laughs> uh, and if you could invite one guest to maybe introduce the film or do a Q&A with after who, who would you want to talk to from this uh, this production well do you know what it's really sad because most of the people I would want to speak to are no longer with us really mm. it would be of course Toby Hooper or it would be Gunnar Hansen as well and Marilyn Burns none of those are, are, are around anymore so I I actually don't know anyone specifically involved in the original film that I would be able to get along as a guest now I guess maybe just some, you know, if I could choose somebody maybe slightly removed from the film, but just one of those contemporaries, I would love to have somebody, somebody that is still with us, like John Carpenter, come and, and talk about this film and talk about 
his you know he had a friendship with Toby Hooper and those two are so important to me and to and to the horror genres particularly of that era I'd love somebody like that to come along and and introduce the film and talk a bit about his experiences because he's actually said some really interesting stuff about horror and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because he always had this theory that horror films should take you up to the edge of what you can take but never cross it and he says if you cross that line you lose your audience you've got to kind of tease that that knife's edge uh, of what people can physically sit and, and and take on screen and he says the texas chainsaw massacre is the best example of a film that teeters on that edge the entire time like you're just on the brink of being unable to take quite how gross and horrible this film is but it never quite goes over that line you know mm. i think that'd be great mm. yeah like a, a dissection yeah. of the texas chainsaw massacre with john carpenter yeah on stage afterwards exactly <laughs> my ideal night <laughs> <laughs> I think I know the answer, but do you think this film could or should be longer than 90 minutes? Definitely not. Oh my God. I mean, there are, there are, I would almost, if I would almost cut a bit from this film, there are so much of uh, Sally screaming and running. If anything, I'd make that slightly shorter. (laughs) So definitely not. Brilliant answer. That's what I like to hear. (laughs) Uh, Well, there we have it. I look forward to our uh, very immersive, quite smelly screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as part of the 90 minutes of this film fest. Mike, where should uh, people head if they want to uh, hear more of your work or see what you're up to on social media? Yes, so I produce and edit all of BBC's Inside Cinema, which is great. And, you know, if you're into films, come and check that out. You can find that uh, if you just search hashtag BBC Inside Cinema on Twitter, you can find all the videos on there, but it's also on BBC iPlayer. And my podcast is called Evolution of Horror, and you can find that in all the places where you normally find podcasts. And I uh, highly recommend listening to the pod. Thank you very much, Mike. Really appreciate you doing this for us and uh, and bringing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to, to audiences. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the show on your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As an independent podcast, it really helps. We're also available on 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. Head over there for more fantastic pods. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.